and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm Lori LeBay, and I'm your host. Uh, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, so I get it. I get that we need products, services, and tools, and we need to connect to people all around the world so that we can care better. So maybe, just maybe, you can be our next guest. If you have a story or a business or a book or a philosophy, whatever, a tool or a product, please reach out to me at radio at Alzheimer's Speaks and we can talk. If you liked our opening music, it's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band and you can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. I'm going to do a couple of shout outs before I introduce our guest today. One is a big shout out to Saltbox TV and Dementia Divas. Um, it is about caregiving and the arts. And myself, Tipa Snow and Dr. Macy Smith will be co-hosting the show. You can see a um, trailer of that. We won't be going live until uh, probably December with the show, but check that out. It's on all the social media platforms and so forth, or you can go to saltboxtv.com and just look at Dementia Debus and click on that. We also have a couple of events coming up on October 31st. So on Halloween, I'll be out in Minnetonka, Minnesota, and we will be doing a screening and talk back of the film, A Timeless Love. Um, extremely powerful. November 11th, We'll be doing a webinar, which is free as well. And that is with volunteering for seniors. Also, December 8th, there's a program I'll be doing with Artist Senior Living, which will be in person in Woodbury, Minnesota. Uh, all of these are free. You can find these more specifics on these by going to alzheimerspeaks.com. Click on our free educational resources and then go to the graphic uh, that shows our public events. Um, also on that page, you'll be able to access dementia chats and uh, dementia quick tips, information about becoming dementia friendly or participating in our dementia in the arts program. Um, we have free tools and so much more. So please feel free to uh, go there. You will also find on that page access to Dementia Map, which is our global resource directory that you'll for sure want to check out. There's lots of great things there. Not only a resource directory, but a calendar of events, um, our glossary of terms, blog with some wonderful articles. We are going to hear from the Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner, and then we'll be right back. I love the footbar walker, and let me tell you why. It is the option for my toolbox that I've been waiting for. Let's be honest. There are some clients who, despite our best rehab efforts, just aren't able to return to performing a sit-to-stand transfer on their own. Now I can offer my caregivers an easier, safer option that doesn't involve hoisting their loved one up from a sitting position. 
I don't recommend this walker for all of my clients, but I do recommend this walker for those caregivers looking for an easier, safer option with transfers. I would also encourage other therapists to add this walker to their toolbox. It's kind of like having my own mobile parallel bars for the client to pull up on. Whether it's a family caregiver at home helping a loved one with Parkinson's or dementia, CNAs in a long-term care facility assisting their patients, or therapists adapting to client and caregiver-specific needs, we now have a very safe and effective option to offer in the Footbar Walker. Check this product out at thefootbarwalker.com. That's it for today from Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner. Have a great day, and don't forget, if you can't do it, adapt it. Okay, we are back. And today we are going to be talking about finding that connection and calmness on the dementia journey, which needless to say, can be challenging at times. And I am thrilled to have Dr. Ann Kenny with us. Dr. Kenny is a geriatrician, and she's also a palliative care physician. She's the author of Making Tough Decisions About End-of-Life Care, in dementia, and she is the founder of Together in Dementia, which is an educational and informational blog. She does coaching, um, and there's a course platform with a mission to provide physician-informed approach to care with someone who has traveled that dementia journey herself. Well, Anne, I am so excited to have you on the show. I, I think the the topic and your expertise and personal experience behind this is just going to add so much to the conversation of of dementia and, you know, planning for end of life, which we all should be doing illness or not, and we all like to avoid. But before we kind of get into our line of questions, I always like to ask if, if you don't mind sharing if you've been personally touched in your own family or circle of friends by dementia. Okay, thank you. And and before I get started, I would just like to say thank you so much for having me here. And thank you for everything you do. I mean, you have just helped the world of dementia so much with with your with your content and with your your passion and with your advocacy. So thank you, thank you. Um, but yes, I um I've been a physician for over 30 years and I was I'm a geriatrician and loved I love taking care of people with dementia and I love taking care of families um, with that we're dealing with uh, dementia. And then my mom developed dementia. Um, I probably noticed that she was getting early signs when she was about 65 years old, Um, but she was living really well and independently for many, many years. Um, she actually got remarried in that time. Um, she had been a widow for over 20 years and um, her, her new spouse actually started to develop signs of dementia as well. So um, she had um, a much more of an Alzheimer's look at first um, mixed with vascular dementia and her, her spouse was much more vascular and they almost kind of complemented each other. So they, they lived pretty well together Um filling it in for each other without um, much support from her kids and and her spouse didn't really want us around, which made it, you know, as many people can, you know, complex families, blended families, it gets hard. Um, But he had an acute illness and his daughters came in and kind of swept him away. um, And that left her without that support anymore. Um, So 
she had she has six kids or had six kids at the time and um so that's when we kind of started becoming her safety net um and she um much like your mom i think is just so independent and so um full of spirit and just wanted to keep that independence was her primary goal. And so we did what we could to, to support her, to keep her independent. She made it really clear. She didn't ever want to live with any of us. Um, she laughed that um, she had raised us and knew better than to live with any of us. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but uh, and luckily she had my, uh, she had made some wise financial choices. So had some flexibility in where she could live. Um, but as you know, still needed a lot of family support to make sure that she was able to, to have that level of um, independence that she wanted. So she lived independently um, and, and then graduated through different levels of assisted living as needed, as she needed more support. She, she got more support in that way as well. Um, But then at the end of her life, um, about two years prior to her death, she had a, a pretty bad stroke. Um, and that took away a lot of the reserve that she had had. And and my family and I had all talked about it. And at that point, we knew that it was probably better that she lived near me because of my expertise in both end of life and in geriatrics. Um, and so again, she was um, even through, she had a new pretty significant um, inability to speak. Um, and she would speak with her eyebrows like, like, I used to say she was like an orchestra conductor with those eyebrows. I mean, she had all of us dancing around, keeping her eyebrows going and just with her facial expressions, just so precious. And she made it clear she still did not want to live with me. (laughs) So she lived um, very close to me in an assisted living and and came to our house many nights. Um, I had three kids ranging in age from Uh, high school down to grade school at the time. And so it was just lovely to have them really get to know their grandmother better. Um, In that time, she would come to all their concerts. And um, I mean, there were ups and downs as in all dementia journeys. But um, for my, my siblings, um, it was harder to watch her starting to fail. But um, we talked, I mean, luckily, I, I am an end of life specialist. So we talked a lot about how to do that well in someone who's living with dementia. And um, she, she finished her last two years out close to me um, in and out of my home, but never, never there too often in the evening. (laughs) So yeah, I, I've had that and, and went through all the emotional ups and downs that, that we all go through when we're watching a family member change and come up with unpredictable things, um, but still just be, I mean, Honestly, I think it was one of the best things that ever happened to me in that I was this kind of rigid doctor with kind of an emotional range about this wide and, and, and journeying with my mom at the end of her life um, with dementia really kind of broke me open in a, in a wonderful way, changed my life for the better. And I I don't think I would have said that then, but Mm -hmm. I definitely say that now. Oh, I totally, totally understand that perspective because you think, I mean, I always say that my mom's dementia is the biggest gift I'll ever receive. And and I'll say, but it was wrapped in a really strange package, you know, (laughs) because you really, you don't expect it at all. And most professionals, and it's so nice to hear a doctor say, you know, that the journey kind of changes your whole perspective. Like you said, it kind of cracks open your heart and you see a whole nother side because so often I think 
professionals at all different levels. We get really task oriented and this is how you do it. Right. And there's not that feeling behind it. There's not that history behind it. And those emotions change everything yeah, on how you're even able to do a task or not do a task or, right. and then you have the family dynamics on top of it all. Cause not every family is father's knows best. Oh yeah. And it gets yeah. complicated really quick. Absolutely. And I, again, I was at this huge advantage in my opinion, because I had had this, this 25 years, I suppose at that point experience watching other families go through it. So I had seen when people did it well, mm-hmm. and when people didn't do it so well, and when people did it incredibly. And so when I hit my lows and, and we all will, because mm-hmm. we're human, when I hit my lows, I could actually, I had so many examples to kind of fall back on and say, oh, they had grace. Mm-hmm. I could pull some grace out right now. I could actually ask for some grace rather than stay here, button my head against the wall or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the egos do come out the right. Oh yeah. On and, <laughs> and things. One thing before I, I kind of go into our questions, I, you know, you had mentioned that, you know, there was a kind of a difference between the Alzheimer's and the vascular type. And some of our listeners might not know the differences when you were saying they kind of complemented each other living together. So could you give a couple of examples for people? Sure, sure. Um, so with my, with my mother, um, she had um, a lot of early, she definitely always had some language issues and, um, but, and, and her, her spouse was very good at communication. So he could handle a lot of the banking or things like that. And, and a lot of his um, executive function around things like banking was well-preserved. My mom's was not. So a lot of the early executive function that may go with um, thinking through a complex process, she couldn't do early on, but he still could. So they could have a few people over for dinner and he could help pull off a party mm-hmm. that she was very social and um, could enjoy the party and could make everyone feel warm and welcome, but definitely couldn't have put together, oh, for a party, I need cheese and crackers. I need something to drink. I need something, you know, coffee. I need maybe cake. So all those like task oriented things he could handle um, and he made sure the bills were paid. She, that would have fallen by the wayside. She, she had a hard time remembering to pay a bill or to, or or to keep track of the paperwork. I mean, it became pile. I'm sure many people have this where there's just piles and piles of paperwork that she would just fret over and worry over and shuffle and shuffle and shuffle. Um, yep. that, I guess that's an example of what happened early on. Those are great examples too, because they're just everyday things that mm-hmm. people don't realize, I think, how they're effective. I'll never forget my when my dad passed, my mom um, was living in a nursing home by then. And people were, because my mom was so social, kind of like, it sounds like yours. Yeah. And people were like, oh, she's doing so well. And I'm like, no, this is all old memory, taking care of everyone else she's not connecting the man in the casket is her husband. Right. Right. And they were like, what do you mean? And I'm like, no, she would be a puddle if, right. if, if yeah. Yeah. She's, she's kind of gone into muscle memory of I'm the hostess of this party. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. Very much so. And full of grace and compassion. And you would just from the outside, I mean, and even people knowing her didn't realize how much things had changed. Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the difficulties sometimes for people who are really social and have those skills, the cover up is really is makes it really difficult because especially when even some family members don't see people all the time, they're like, they're fine. They're and that, fine. Definitely, <laughs> that definitely happened in my family. I come from a family of four boys and two girls. And so my mom would show the girls some of the cracks in the veneer, mm-hmm. but she wouldn't show the boys. And so when my sister and I were like sounding some alarms, like things we have to, we have to kind of gather around and be supportive without being, um, intrusive they're Mm -hmm. like you're crazy she doesn't need anything you're overreacting I mean so things were said that you know my sister and I needed to really um show some grace around as time went on because we were told that we were crazy and that we were overreacting um and and they didn't want to help they didn't want to support because they thought we were were making things up that it wasn't I think that's very common in families yeah. Where, where one or two have to take on the responsibilities because of, because of that social um, facade or, you know, or, or strength, the, the social strengths that are still there, but there's still things like the banking that's not happening. Yeah. 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 My, we went through that with my family. I remember a, a great example of that was up at the lake. My mom wouldn't let anybody else in the kitchen, but me. So everyone would go up to the lake and they're out on the lake and they're skiing and they're having a good time. And I was cooking and cleaning for 30 people all weekend long because she would growl if anybody else was in her kitchen, but she trusted me. Right. You know? And so it was like, okay, that's the way it's going to be. And people are like, come on out. I'm like, I can't really because she doesn't want to do it. Right. And so I, right. Yeah. And, and people don't understand that you're, you're trying to keep them comfortable and in the zone and still allow things to, to happen. Um, But yeah, it does get misconstrued a lot that, you know, oh, you just need to be needed, you know, or something like that, that she's really fine or he's really fine. You know, you have to be, because the person living with dementia is losing some of that ability to adapt. Mm -hmm. So you become, you know, extra adaptable. And again, like you said, to make sure that they're as functioning as highly as they can, you have to be that flexibility for them for yep. to allow that to yep. come through. Yeah, to keep them in their zone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, let's talk about, you know, when did you first get interested in, in working with adults living with dementia? <clears throat> Is this something that, you know, for me, I, I've been attracted to um elders all my life since I was really little and you know was touched by dementia though back then they didn't call it that it was senility or getting old or you know we can't really do anything about it this is what happens when we age how how did it all hit you when I was um uh I, I I think it started when I was in medical school um in my second year of medical school uh a professor, Jane Potter, had just gotten back from a, a fellowship in geriatrics, and she did a series of lectures. She was a one-person show, and um, 
as soon as she started speaking, I was like, Ooh, that is for me. That is what I want to do. I loved that it was interesting and complicated, but it was also holistic so that it was interesting what was happening medically from a family dynamics, kind of socially, um, there was some psychiatry, but not a lot of psychiatry there. Um, there was like, I could kind of be a social worker. I could kind of be a psychiatrist. I could be rehab. And I found that just like, like you could actually take care of the whole person in their family unit. Um, and as much as I loved kids, if kids got sick, I couldn't function, but I, I loved, and one of the things that Dr. Potter did is had us meet people right away. And I fell in love with it. My grandmother was one of my favorite people in the world. I think a lot of people who are in this field say something like that. Um, And I pretty much wanted to do geriatrics from that point on. And so, um, and geriatrics was really in its infancy in the United States at that time. Um, And so I actually moved from the Midwest um, to to Connecticut, where somebody was just coming down from Harvard to start a fel- a, a residency program, um, and so I I, tr- I came out here on purpose to train with them, and um, and one thing that they used to push a lot in geriatrics was they wanted you to get involved in research because there were very few of us, very few geriatricians, and they wanted us to be leaders by being researchers. And so I picked a a research mentor from the University of Connecticut who was amazing, and he was a a bone researcher. Um, And even though my interest was in in, um, dementia, I knew I, I was, that my chance of being a researcher was limited. So I would basically do clinical research in the mornings um, on bone, but, and then I, w- I added frailty because that would, that, that fit. And then in the afternoon, I would have my clinical care and I would basically take all this information that these older frail people would tell me about. And then I would apply it to people who were living with dementia, who could not articulate as well, exactly what was going on. So it was such an amazing blend of like using kind of my, my clinical um, research group to really inform how I practiced medicine for people living with dementia. And it is there that I really, I didn't realize that my practice was different than a lot of geriatricians, but it was informed by like 90 and hundred year olds who were frail, who were physically frail and said, oh, honey, I can't, I can't tolerate those antibiotics or I can't, you can't make me drink all that, those ensures that's, that's nasty, you know, like, so, and then, so when people would go, she has to have ensures, I'd go, she, she doesn't seem to like it. Or it, it was just, it was such a wonderful blend. So from basically from medical school on. <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting is, you know, your approach is you're, you're taking what you learn and you're not just keeping it in that bucket. You're saying what I learn can be spread over a variety of things. And I think so often we're taught, you know, stay in your lane, right? Stay in your lane. And I, to me, that's one of the beautiful things about dementia, because what I always say is what's good for dementia is good for the world. 
I mean, you can't really do something that's good for dementia that's going to be harmful to somebody else. Um, The only thing I've ever heard anybody argue that on is when I say, uh, when they're kind of in a fight uh, during the, the right and wrong and doing kind of the corrective care of, no, we're not going to the doctor tomorrow. You know, that, that's not till next month or whatever. Um, and, and doing a fit, you know, using a fiblet and doing kind of that, that therapeutic lie. Some people that's against my religion. I can't do that. And, you know, I just try to explain again, it's about comfort care. And, yeah. and that's really what you were doing was saying, well, this makes sense to apply this over here Right. And, and, and I think that, I, I mean, for, as a physician, dementia is so complex and so interesting and, and you have to be so creative. So I get to use both my analytic mind and mm-hmm. my creativity. It, it, and, and I think, so then when my mother was living with dementia, I tried to bring that into it. And I, and that's when I thrived versus you know, when I tried to stay too analytic, I, I, we were surviving maybe kind of, (laughs) but we were thriving when I, you know, when we, when I got into that sense of play at, but informed play Mm -hmm. much better. Well, yeah. And uh, to me, dementia is teaching us to be creative again. Yeah. Yeah. And we, and like you said, this is really a new disease. I mean, to me, it's a baby disease. We know very little. There's so many types of dementias. I still don't know how many types there are because I've heard from 80 to over 200. Right. And no one can really seem to pin that down. And then you have multiple dementias. Some people get more than one type. Aren't they lucky? Right. You know? yeah. And, yeah. Or, or the name changes of, of yeah. what they have. And so there's just so many variables. And the disease is so fluid. If we're not fluid, we don't have a chance right. of keeping up with it. Yeah. And that's something we were talking about even before we started this interview is that fluidity doesn't necessarily come naturally to us as humans. We like oh. control. We like to think that we, we got a handle on it, but you kind of have to do that mindset shift of, I'm going to have to master fluidity, not master control. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. It, well, and that's when you really start knowing in, in a lot of times on an unconscious level, figuring out you're living in the moment when you're doing that. Right. And there, you know, there was such pushback of, oh, that's new age. And, you know, that's anti-Christian and it's anti this and anti that. Um, People are really understanding, boy, there are really small gems I'm missing because I'm moving too fast or I'm being too rigid in life. And and I'm missing out some beautiful, beautiful things. And, and I also think it, it comes in to play with, we've been taught that aging and illness is bad right. and you know and there's there's no way around it you know there is no yeah my brother can, says he's going to get me a plaque that says no one gets out alive because i i talk about death and I, and i don't think death is such a bad thing i actually think it's a we have a one birth and we have one death and you can you can rail against it if you want but mm-hmm. you're much more likely to have a better time if you focus on living now, accepting that we don't get out of this alive and you'll yep. again, you'll, you'll live more presently of with, how do I want to spend this moment knowing that that moment may not be here. And none of us are guaranteed a tomorrow. Yep. And, and so often we, th- we, we expect that, right. you know, and, and you, I mean, I, I've not had 
a near death experience. When I was 21, I got in a car accident and I guess that was probably the closest that I had. Um, but it, it still wasn't as traumatic as, as so many others. But people say those near death experiences, they change how they live. Yeah. They change what's important. And I think dementia is here to teach us that as well, that there's a lot of different ways to live a life. Right. And there's beauty in all different levels and just getting us to accept again, that we don't have control or being accepting of people doing things different ways. Like I know with my brothers, um, they would say, well, you know, you're kind of a control freak and you really didn't let us into the picture. And I was like, no, I'm organized. And that's why everyone picked me to do this, you know? (laughs) And so we were saying the same things in real different levels with very different perceptions and, and impacts of the situation. And I can look back and go, yeah, I guess I, I, I probably was demanding because I was deemed the one in charge. And so I wanted to protect and, you know, give them the highest quality of care, not realizing that everybody has their own relationships and they deliver that in different ways and if everyone was a clone of me, that would be pretty damn boring. You know? <laughs> but, but that is, I mean, that is such an important point. And, and it's one thing that um, when, when my mom came to live near me and I started saying, it's time to demedicalize her. It, mm-hmm. it's, it's time to start thinking that some of these things may not be to her benefit anymore and maybe harming her more. My siblings were said, are you crazy? She has to have her blood pressure medicine. She has to have her blood thinner. She, and, and I said, well, I thought we were trying to prevent strokes. She's having strokes. I thought we, you know, and so, and so then I was like, wait a minute, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm talking to them from up here. Mm -hmm. And what we're all on the same page is that we want the best thing for my mom. And so I tried to switch the conversation around a bit. And I said, what, what do you think you would want if, if you were at this level of dementia and you know you had what would you want and and I I uh, have a brother who who said things like I would want is is, he he was a lawyer and he was very in his head and he said as soon as I couldn't think I would want to be put on an ice floe and set out to sea and I have another brother who's who's very not like that and 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 really thinks every life is just precious, precious, precious. And he said, I would want everything done to the very last second. And so, and I, and so I had everybody in a circle, you know, like in a circle. So we have, you know, both extremes and then the rest of us fell somewhere in the middle and to hear everyone articulate what their way was, was really interesting and important. And then I said, okay, now what do we think mom would want? She can't really speak for herself right now, but what do we all you know, and those stories were pretty similar that we all kind of had the same read on my mom, not quite the same, but it was very illuminating for everyone to hear and then honor. Oh, he comes at it this way. He comes at it this way. She comes at, you know, like that we all had our ways of coming at it, but that we got together on, and our goal here is not to do it our way, but to do it mom's way. And, and that was very, I mean, and I've used that story to help a lot of families who are like, she won't let me in, or they won't do what I say, or, and I'm like, we all got our ways, but yep. you can figure out how to get on the same page. 
even within within your ways, because those things, that diversity is, will be helpful to, to dealing with whatever's coming up. Well, and in families, everyone plays certain roles, you know, and you've got the, the, you know, poster child and, you know, the, the sheep, you know, (laughs) that's always in trouble. And you, you know, you have all these different roles that come into play and positions or I'm the oldest, so I should be in charge or, you know, blah, 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 blah. And none of this is black and white. Definitely um, not. And, and each of our different, I mean, we, we may call them roles, but they're also skill sets. Mm-hmm. And, and to support somebody living with dementia, the more skill sets you can bring in, the better off you are. Yep. And, and, and leveraging them in the right positions. Right. Because I've seen families where they have the lawyer doing meals and somebody else doing the legal and it's just kind of like or you know or the accountant's not in charge of the finances and I, yeah. just really goofy stuff right um, and because because of those old family um roles versus mm-hmm. who they've become as adults yeah they're no longer six seven and eight <laughs> yeah yeah well that that is so true and I think having these conversations up front is really important one thing that I I will mention I don't know if you're familiar with it's like um, advanced oh gosh now what is it called the very end of life yeah yeah where you have different choices of yeah where you are yeah oh my gosh, that's so helpful and not just and it's you know they haven't set up for dementia but it it goes way beyond dementia I mean right. these things can happen to any of us and to say okay. Well, if I have this and this, then I want that. But if it changes to this and this and this, well, then I, then this is what I want. And, you know, it, it, it makes it easy, you know, to address those things and mix it up. But I, but I think it goes way past dementia. And, yeah. and, and I think it, it is important. I mean, most of us will not have these discussions mm-hmm. people are afraid to have them. Yep. Um, and and a lot of people don't want to have the discussions with their parents, mm-hmm. believe it or not. And, and that's, it's hard because with dementia, you're going to be making decisions for someone else, even if they wrote everything down. And it's much better to do one of these more complicated um, advanced directives, the, the mm-hmm. ones with different layerings, because you'll get a better idea what some of those um, questions that you need to answer are not just, do I want to be resuscitated or do I want to be intubated? That's like the last few minutes of life, right? But, but kind of these decisions, as you get further in the disease, when would you not want to have somebody um, hand feeding you anymore? Or, you know, if you, if there's a lot of people with dementia who close their mouth to food and their bodies know what they're doing, they, Mm -hmm. you know, they, they've lost that drive to eat and, does that mean that they will die? Yes, but they're all the, you know, all the connections are starting to go and it families need to know that's the way the disease will go so that they don't feel guilty that mom started to lose weight or dad would, would only eat ice cream. Mm -hmm. That's okay. That the, the body knows what to do. Yeah. And if, if you know that that would be what they chose, it makes it a lot easier to make that decision. I think if you know that's the way the disease goes, it makes it easier as well because you don't stop care. You just might stop feeding. Yeah. Um, and there's a point where feeding, I mean, feeding is so complicated. Mm-hmm. It's such a, uh, you know, we break bread 
to come together. We, you know, some people say I couldn't starve. I mean, those are starving is a, an emotionally loaded phrase. And, and so there's nutrition and as the disease progresses, people are not going to get their nutrition, even if we try to give them boost. And when we try to force food on people, their bodies are not at a place where they can tolerate it anymore. And then they start getting edema, you know, swelling and choking and, and, and that it's not the, the nutrition isn't going where it needs to go anyway, because the, the, the neuro signals are not there any longer. Um, and so they, the, the person, the body of knows what to do. It knows to kind of stop, slow down. And it's not because you haven't given good care. It's just part of the disease process. Yeah. Well, and when you've had these conversations, it's so much easier because otherwise I think it's, it's really easy for us to project. No, we have to keep them alive. We have to keep them alive because you you don't want to go to that next phase. And then Mm -hmm. everybody's in denial. And then you can be actually causing their body more stress and distress Right. Which then ripples back at everybody too of, you know, fix this. What are we doing? And it's like, well, we're kind of causing this. Right. And then, and honestly, as people get further and further in the disease, I mean, you don't need as many medications as you may have needed when you were 50, 60, 70. I mean, the medications are probably not helping anymore and they may be harming. When my mom, I think she lived well for the, her two years on hospice off meds, she got so much better when we took her off all of her meds mm-hmm. um, because I think they weren't, she wasn't tolerating them in her little body anymore. And um, well, yeah. And I mean, some of them can cause constipation, you know, if they're not drinking as much liquid, I mean, there's, there's just so many different so many. things. Yeah. And those, those, you know, contraindications can change as the body changes and exactly. as nutrition changes and you can say, well, yeah, but it's never been that before. Well, that doesn't mean it's not now. Exactly. And there's all kinds of things that have changed. I mean, that's to me, the definition of dementia is things are changing. Yep. All, you can't always see it, but things are always changing. Yeah, exactly. You have to kind of keep coming back with fresh eyes. Exactly. Now, you know, your palliative approach, I, I would imagine, you know, it was just such a huge, a huge, how do I want to say? I would say your, your palliative approach really probably changed how you cared for your geriatric population. Did you realize it at the time or did you kind of see it slowly in terms of, I know you said before, you didn't realize your business was different than others, but it's when I started taking care of, or when I started having my mom taken care of Mm -hmm. by my colleagues um, and and she was in a, a facility. Uh, she was in an assisted living that was right behind where I work. So some of my colleagues were there as well. And, and so I got to see their approach and my approach. Um, and I had no idea how much more palliative I was than even geriatricians. I mean, these were geriatricians, but it, it was it was that kind of shift to our goals change as people move through a disease. And, and so it's one thing if it's cancer, I think 
I think my colleagues were good at like moving through cancer or moving through something else that they saw as terminal. But I don't think a lot of the geriatricians even were seeing at that time anyway, they weren't even, and, and honestly, that this was only 10 years ago, they weren't even seeing um, dementia as a terminal disease. And I, I think of it as a chronic disease. It is a chronic disease. You can live a long time very well with dementia, but there is a flexion point where you start to die from dementia. And in kind of as you're moving, I mean, we know that dementia doesn't like, it's not like you, you make the changes on March, you know, like with marching orders, but as you're kind of going back and forth in the later the later moderate stages to the early late stages, for me, that's a time to start saying, oh, we got to, we need to start reassessing goals of care. Is this the time that we want our goals to be in preventing death mm-hmm. or in improving comfort? Mm-hmm. And I even think in moderate stages, we're, we're already doing that. I think mostly as care partners in how we approach someone, we don't expect, um, you know, as somebody is, is not able, as they go from needing cueing with dressing to actual physical help with dressing, we're used to making those changes as care partners. Yep. But I don't think the doctors are thinking as much because again, they often come to the clinic. Well, and as you know, Lori, like uh, Dr. Day is like, they're always on their best behavior, right? The, the social, the social piece comes out in spades. Um, but that I, I, I was already using kind of functional decline as the way I assessed most of my patients. And, and I didn't see that my colleagues were doing that as much. And that, and that at, there's a point where when the function is declining, that correlates with the changes of things happening in the brain. And that's the time to start saying, we need to peel back some of this medical approach and start acknowledging kind of the brutal reality that we're we're shifting from the chronic disease state to more of the terminal part of this this mm-hmm. condition and then you don't just get on this um medical conveyor belt you can actually when you shift your goals of care to palliative it's a much better way for someone living with dementia to to ease out of this, off this planet, going to the hospital is so traumatic as many have seen. Um, if, if someone can't keep up with their hydration, it's, it's not going to be solved by having an IV, IV fluids Mm -hmm. at what cost? Because as soon as that leader or two goes in them, they go back and they can't keep up again. I mean, if it's early in the disease and they had some illness, yes, that's different. But if you know functionally that you're moving towards the late stages of dementia, you're not keeping up with fluids because you're not keeping up. That's part of the the disease process that you can't swallow as well and that you're not you're not driven to. And it's partly the body trying to shut itself down a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think, I think when you come from that compassionate side of really quality of life, mm-hmm. and I think quality of life is thrown out a lot, but people don't always really understand it at its crux. And we need to be looking at that from day one I, I agree. And, and having those conversations. And I know that people are so uncomfortable. 
on, on having those things, but yet people are adamant in life about being in control. But then when it comes to end of life, no, it's too scary. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> and I think the thing is like, it is scary to talk about end of life. It, it really is because, because it's been a uh, stigmatized just mm-hmm. like dementia has been, but, yeah. but we have to advocate for things like this. We have to advocate for people to talk about dementia and people to talk about death from dementia. Um, and th- for me, the way to start those conversations is not how do you want to die, but how do you want to live? And if you really focus on how do you want to live? The death is just the other side of that coin. And so then you can say, realizing one day you will die. We all will. But how exactly, but then how do you want to live until the day you can't? And, and I think people then are willing to go, oh, it is, it just, it does come to that choice. We can't, we, we don't, we don't have control over how we're going to die, but we have much better choices and some semblance of control if we actually think about it and talk about it. Oh, I I agree. Now you wrote the book, um, Making Tough Decisions About End of Life Care in Dementia. And I know that you've said that, you know, you don't really like the title of the book. What would you name it if you if you could rename it today? Well, when I named it, I I actually named it Letting Go. Okay. And and a a caregiver giver's guide and it's because I think it's about letting go of so many things. Mm-hmm. Letting go of that idea that we're in control. Mm-hmm. Letting go of like all of our preconceived notions of who we are in this process and like for me it was letting go of my hyper intellectual approach and really sinking into my heart, ultimately letting go of my mother, mm-hmm. but, um, even letting go of the preconceived notion that I was her caregiver and she was the care receiver and really understanding the interdependence that still went all the way through. I just, on so many levels, I needed to, to let go of mostly of what my ideas were. Mm-hmm. and, and, and lean into that flexibility that you talked about earlier in the, um, the, deci- the, the conversation it, the book is, is not just about, the book is about dealing with your own, uh, the caregivers mm-hmm. or the care partners emotions about all of this. Um, it, it's got some issues in it, um, about, you know, like practical things as well but Mm -hmm. a lot of it's about how do we care for somebody living and then dying with dementia and how do we care for ourselves while we lose that person to this disease because it's a family disease and it so it's not just about the decisions it's about coping adapting as as the as the care partner to the loss as well well, and I like that you've included that because so often we just focus on the person and then we're, we're totally ignoring our emotions and, and where we're at. Um, you know, there's a, there's a group that our Roseville Dementia Friendly Group started and it's called Dementia Caregivers Reentry Program mm. because the people are so lost. They don't know who they are. They, they don't know how to move forward. You know, they're really stuck and alone. And so, 
you know, they've kind of formed this, this group, this support group to maneuver through that together because they need, they need to talk Absolutely. about it. They need and that's why others the, are doing it. the name of my business is Together in Dementia because mm-hmm. we, you know, you have to be there with your person living with dementia. You have to be there in your community. You have, you know, it's, it's, we're all together in this. It, mm-hmm. You know, one person with dementia affects so many of us and we are together in it. And they will, the people living with dementia will live better if we don't overdo for them and we don't underdo for them. And, and they will do better with purpose, teaching us things as, as they go through the journey and we figure out how to be co-travelers. It, I just think it's a, it's, it's a group. This is, I, I, I think what you said, Laurie is perfect. What's good for people with dementia is good for the world. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting when you, when you're talking about dementia, it just affects everyone. Like one of the things when I, I remember first stepping into this space and I would see the statistics and I don't really even, I, I don't know what they are, or if they're still using this, but they used to say for every person with dementia, six to seven people were affected. And I'm like, that number is so off the mark. It's not even funny. Yeah, most put families, a zero behind those. <laughs> yeah, I mean, most families are bigger than that. And people have multiple circle of friends. They, you know, they have acquaintances at the grocery store and the bank. And I mean, there's just this huge ripple effect. And it is, we are, we need to all be in this together. We need right. to be respectful of others' journeys. Yes. And, and understand um, how can we support them? And I think so often it's like, well, the family's taking care of it. And it's like, no. well, you know, what if this business would just make this little twist that wouldn't right. cost anything? Huge difference. We, we call this one woman at a bank when my mom, when her husband had just been kind of whooshed away, my mom almost got whisked into somebody's car at the bank. Mm. And um, luck, we call her our angel, but she knew that my mom was struggling, that she was at the bank way too often because she couldn't remember the phone number. And, and like, she basically went out, the people were getting, were going to carjack my mom's car. And my mom was going to be a hostage, I think in the back. And and luckily this, this bank teller who is just an angel came out and said, Mrs. Kenny, come here. You know, Uh I I need, you forgot to sign something. She did a fiblet, Mm -hmm. but got her inside, called my sister. And again, that's like, that woman may not have been one of those six, but she definitely affected my mother and she affected my sister and I in a huge way. And I mean, she's looking out for all kinds of people. Wow. Just like an angel. She's just an angel. And luckily there's a bunch of people like that out there. That's what I was going to say. There are more people like that than we hear about because the news is filled with all the nasty, icky stuff. But the ones who who hijack people, right? But no. Yeah. But oh my gosh. I mean, I can't even imagine my heart would have been, you know, getting that, getting that call. That's when we, and then we're like, okay, she can't live independently anymore, unfortunately. And, and my mom wanted to, but she needed more support at that point. Yeah. But thank God there was a witness to that. I mean, that, that could have been the end of her life. I mean, you right. don't know what, what could have happened no. with all of that. Yeah, I mean, my sister is convinced it would have been the end of her life. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, geez. 
Yeah, we really need to watch out for one another. Yes, and, we do. And be be more compassionate. Um, and that's why I love what you do. I mean, you you're one of those people who went above and beyond to make sure that the greater good is being done. So thank you. Well, and I think we can all do that at different levels. I mean, it doesn't have to be your life's work. You know, it can be a moment in time here or there. Yep. That, and I think a lot of us have, um, I, well, I think all of us, not a lot of us, I think everyone has impacted someone's life that they have no idea that they impacted their lives right. by saying hi or opening a door, or picking up a package when something's tumbled or, you know, um, buying someone's coffee who is behind you that you just made their day. I mean, all kinds of little things um, can, can have a huge, huge impact. And yeah. With so many businesses, a lot of times it's just a smile and eye contact. Yeah. It costs nothing. Yeah. Kindness. It, yeah. Kindness costs nothing. Yeah. Kindness trumps it all though. And we don't really teach that in school. We don't really talk about the effect, but we've all been touched by kindness and it can bring us to tears or put a smile on our face or, you know, it can make us be kind to the next, you know, person or 10 people or next everybody that we come in contact with, you know, I mean, it just, it changes lives. And uh, again, dementia doesn't have to be complicated. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the biggest lessons that I've learned in talking with so many people like you have learned that it's like, it really can be quite simple and quite basic. And if we let it be, you know, but we have to kind of kick the fear to the side and go, and get back to the relationship of what's going to be best for this person. And, And, you know, when I was feeling like I can't do this, or I'm, I'm afraid Mm -hmm. sitting with my fear, I was like, Oh, it's inconvenient, but it's not hurting me. Mm -hmm. I can handle a little fear. I can do tough things. I've done tough things. I can do this. I mean, it wouldn't be long before I was like, get up, get out of your pity party and go help your mom. Yeah. It's not that hard. It yeah. is. I mean, it, it it's heart wrenching, mm-hmm. but it's not hard. Well, and so often when we do those things, I mean, it teaches us lessons to be a better person. And like you said, it makes us stronger and, and it shows us, Oh, I have more in me than I thought I did. Exactly. <laughs> and I mean, if life were always easy, it'd be boring. Yeah. It's those, I mean, when you think about what are you proud of yourself for, there's some of the tough things you did. It's not the easy stuff you did. You're proud of yourself for the, when, when you had to have a little grit. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's very, very true. Well, tell us a little bit more about um, together in dimension, what all your business has to offer our audience. Okay. Um, I just started together in dementia. Um, I've, I've been dancing around trying to figure out how to be of service for a long time. Um, and so I started a web page or a blog that has some content on it about, um, my perspective on, I know there's a lot out there, um, but it's my perspective on how to handle or deal with dementia. Um, that I also have started a a coaching, either one-on-one group coaching, and I'm starting a, a care course as well. Um, kind of my take again on what would be beneficial 
for people going through um, beginning the journey of dementia with the with their person. Mm-hmm. And um, I I wrote a book, the Making Tough Decisions, and I have another book that's in the process, with one more for the person living with dementia, uh, more of a journal to kind of walk through some of the questions, and um, that I started to. Well, I'm nearly done with it, but starting this together in dementia seemed like if no one knows who I am, no one will buy a book. So I have to <laughs> get out there some way. So thank you for having me here to get that, to get some of the word out on, on what I'm trying to do. Well, and I, you know, I love that you're sharing your story on the blog and that you're, you know, coaching using your experience, not only as medical professional, but as a daughter who's been on this journey, I, I just think that that changes everything in terms of the delivery and understanding of what's really going on or being able to have insights into what might be coming down the road and giving people different options, you know, to, to make their path the smoothest, because my path is different than your path. Absolutely. will be from somebody else's. And the more we can all share stories, um, the better, the better off we all are, the more educated we are, because again, it might not work for me, but now I can share it with somebody else who, who it might help, you know, and point them. And making tough decisions is full of stories. The stories Mm -hmm. of my family, every chapter starts with the story of my family and, and all, and a lot of the people I took care of um, are in there as well. Their names are changed. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, they're, they're, their story is safe. Sometimes they're a conglomerate, but um, they're some of the stories that taught me so much, uh, or I thought would be an easier way to learn kind of the, the take-home message. Yeah. Well, and I think families are looking for in the trench ways, like what has really worked? <laughs> what, what, don't tell me a theory, just t- tell me. And I mean, everything we do, you know, it, you know, we turn it over with, it may or may not work. It's, you know, it's okay. Build a tool toolkit for yourself. Right. Um, don't listen to just one person, listen to a lot of different people. Right. You'll, and you'll hear probably a repetitive message set in different ways that you'll resonate with differently. Right. Uh, and you'll hear different things too. And, and at different times in your personal journey, mm-hmm. you'll hear something one way. And then at another time, you'll hear it a whole nother way because of what's happened to you in the interim. Exactly. Exactly. Well, are there people who have inspired you to, to get into this line of work? I'm sure your mom was one, but absolutely. Mom. Yeah. Jane Potter, the the person in geriatrics from the, the get-go I've had just wonderful mentors. Um, Richard Besdeen was at, at Harvard and then at U- university of Connecticut and, and then at Brown. Um, he's a huge advocate of people living with dementia. Um, I've worked with um, some amazing occupational therapist. I, I wanted to be an occupational therapist when I first um, started in college. And the occupational therapist said to me, oh, there's these doctors over me. If, if, I ha- if I had to do it over, I would try to be the doctor. I was like, oh, okay, I'll try that. Um, <laughs> stupid me. I should have been the occupational therapist. Um, and I probably still would have been working with dementia. Um, but But I think that the occupational therapy kind of approach to um, maximizing function, uh, like you said, people want to know what works. And mm-hmm. I think asking for occupational therapy input and, or using things that like Laura Gitlin 
um, and her group have put together is is very effective. And then mostly people who are living with dementia. I I mean, I just love reading the stories of Richard Taylor and Kate Swaffer and, you know, just the, I, I can't, I think I've read every book written by somebody living with dementia, George, uh, Greg O'Brien there. I just to, to hear their stories and to, to be inspired by them. Um, the, the Scottish working group, I, I had the, privilege of going with um, a, a dear friend of mine, Stephanie Shivers, who's also an occupational therapist and and works at um, Caring Kind in New York City. Um, when we both worked at Live Well, uh, which is a, a long-term care facility, um, educational uh, expertise in dementia place in Connecticut, we were able to go over to Scotland and, and talk to with the Scottish working group um, and a lot of the people who put together the, that, that pillar model, which is amazing. I mean, the Scottish government that they approved care for the first post-diagnostic care. I I'm impressed by that. So, so many people, I, you could go on and on and on you. Well, well and I'm glad that you, you brought up the, the, the Scottish um, team because so often people think, you know, we start everything here in, in the U S and we are really far behind a lot of other countries and the Scottish model, you know, the UK, what they're doing. I mean, everybody, the more we share, the better it is for all of us. But I mean, it's, it is just absolutely incredible. Um, some of the work that is there and is as much progress as we make, we can still look back and go, oh my gosh, they're still so far ahead of us. Yeah. But then we can look at others and go, boy, we're ahead of these guys though. But that means that's our duty to help them. Right. And you know? much like Scotland was with open arms said, come on over, learn what you can, take what you can and and keep moving it forward. Yep. Again, it, it gets, gets back to the, this is a global problem. There are going to be global solutions. There's no reason we shouldn't all work together on this. Yeah. I, re I remember when I first heard about the um, memory cafes from Norm McNamara. And uh, so he hooked me up with them over there and they changed all their verbiage and, you know, they pulled out their S's and they put our Z's back in and wanted to know, what do you call this position? And, and I said, well, what do you want for it? No, it's free. And I mean, exactly. my jaw just dropped because as sad as it is here in the US, that's not the common thing to do. Yeah. And I remember calling up Mark Wortman, who at the time was the executive director of Alzheimer's Disease International. And he just, he just like busted a gut laughing, you know, because I'm like, I think I have to move. They don't get it here. And, <laughs> and, he's, and, he, and, and I'm like, this isn't funny. I'm serious, Mark. And he's like, you really don't know why, do you? And I said, no, I, I don't understand it. To me, it's just so simple. We should all be collaborative. We should all work together. And, and he said, well, Lori, you know, the United States was started by people who left here, who didn't like the idea of social care and greater good. And the U.S. has been built up by being proprietary and having all these silos. And it's like, oh, wow. That just like slapped me in the face going, okay, now this, this makes sense. Yeah. Why? And it's gotten better. And then I think things pulled back during COVID. And then I think COVID's forcing even more collaborations now. Mm -hmm. um, but with staff shortages, it's still not enough. And we still need more funding. 
uh, but we will for a long time because we got a long, long ways to go. We've made great strides, but um, so much to learn yet with all of this. Well, Anne, I can't thank you enough for the time. Oh, um, thank you for having me today. This was just such a, a great conversation. And I would really encourage people to go to Anne's site. Again, that's togetherindementia.com. You can also email her at Dr. Anne, and that's D-R-A-N-N-E at togetherindementia.com. She also has a Facebook group. So just put in Together in Dementia and that'll pop up. She's on Twitter at Ann Kenny MD, and then also Ann Kenny. Um, you can find her on LinkedIn too. So, um, but check out check out that book. I think, my gosh, it just sounds like it is loaded with great information. And you know those tough those tough decisions. It's nice to hear other people's stories on how they approach them. Or even to know that that's a tough question that might be creeping up your, up your path that you're not even aware could be coming. Right. You know, it's, it's a great way to prepare and again, to not feel so isolated and alone. Because I think that's one of the worst pieces of illness is when you, when you feel isolated and alone, it just amplifies everything and I think creates more fear and more frustration. Um, for the journey. And then that ripples out to everyone you touch in all of your life, not just the person you're caring for with dementia, but your family, your friends, your work life. I mean, it's stuff we can't hide. We think we, we think we can put on our Stepford wives, smile and get by. Um, but we have all these other nonverbals that are going, oh no, they're crazy. They're really stressed out right now. And people are reading all that stuff. And the only one we're fooling is ourselves. And people want to help. Mm-hmm. They really do. You think you're burdening them, but you're not. Think about when you feel good is when you help someone else. So give them the gift of letting them help you. Yep. And, and there's and, and there's some people out there that really don't want to do that. It's not. I'll let you know. But it's, <laughs> but it's not the, I don't think it's the majority. It's the minority. And, and people, like you said, they want to know how to help. But then we also have to be honest when, instead of saying, well, just call me, you know, and then we put the burden back on them. We have to be prepared with little tasks that we'd feel comfortable with them doing. Maybe it's coming over and, and just staying with your loved ones. So you can go shopping or get your hair done or go to the grocery store or just sneak in the bedroom and take a nap. <laughs> you know, Even if it's just to come over and have a cup of tea with you. Yep. So that you have company variety in your day. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And you, yep. You don't have to sneak off anywhere sometimes, just Very true. new set of people to hear your voice. Yeah. And so often family and friends kind of go by the wayside. And that's one of the things I love about the memory cafes is it helps bring people back together where they feel like they have a, a peer group that's accepting and loving and compassionate and supportive and they can laugh and cry together. And there's nothing better than that. Yeah, so. absolutely. Well, I, again, and thank you so much. Um, and again, people, please go to uh, her website and check out that book. I think it's, uh, it's just going to be wonderful, uh, wonderful, wonderful resource for people. And we also appreciate you being part of Dementia Map too. People oh. can find you there as well. And again, the website is togetherindementia.com. Thanks again, Anne. Thank Bye you. now.
Bye-bye. So please go to alzheimerspeaks.com. Check out our website. We just redid it not too long ago. So we have one whole page that has all different types of icons you can go to that, that has all different types of graphics for a variety of free resources that you can tap into. Also, if you're looking for a speaker or a trainer or uh, looking at branding, we have opportunities on all of that as well. You can um, email me at radio at alzheimerspeaks.com or again, just go to the website. You can reach out from there. Bye now. Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors from fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great quick motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me. Listen now. Search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform.